Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. God speaks to us from Matthew 5, 9, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, and 11, 1 through 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice, righteousness, from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With his breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. And the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Can you think of anything that you want more than peace? I mean, imagine it. Imagine perfect peace. Peace instead of relational strife. Peace instead of injustice. Peace instead of war. Peace instead of suffering and sickness and death. Peace instead of personal insecurities. Peace instead of unending toil. Can you imagine it? If we were to live in total peace, what more could we possibly ask for? And as we know, though we want peace, so often peace seems elusive and unattainable. If we get moments of peace, which sometimes they come, there always seems to be a storm just right around the corner that churns the waters that are around us. And so even in the midst of a sense of peace, the temporariness of peace often undermines our ability to enjoy that moment of peace. And then we have Jesus who comes, and he adds even greater weight the concept of peace by saying that it is the peacemakers, those who pursue and experience peace, they are the ones who are called the children of God. What in the world is that supposed to mean in a world where so often we strive for, work for, long for 
and yet rarely ever have full and complete peace. Well, today we continue our series looking at the Beatitudes in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Each of the Beatitudes is providing us a glimpse into the life and character and nature of the kingdom of God. And today we uh, need to consider what it means for God's kingdom to be one marked by peace and inhabited by peacemakers. And so to do that, I want to break down Jesus' words in Matthew 5 by considering what, is G what does Jesus have in mind when he speaks of peace? What does he have in mind when he speaks of peacemaking? And what does he have in mind when he says that they will be children of God? What does it mean to be a child of God? So first, let's take a look at peace. Uh, to begin, as we always do, as we've done all throughout the series, we really need to ensure that we have a full understanding of how the Bible talks about peace. And to do so, I put in front of you a passage from the prophet Isaiah. A little context on what we just read. The prophet Isaiah, his ministry is during a turbulent, turbulent time in Israel and in Judah's history. Uh, the prophet is preaching a message of a coming judgment because of injustices in the land. Uh, but in the midst of this prophecy of judgment, he's also giving them hope of salvation that's to come. That's to come on the other side of that judgment. A hope of a different kind of kingdom, ruled by a different kind of king. A king like they had never experienced before. Now this passage is uh, you know, famously a Christian, a Christian <laughs> Christmas passage. Uh, because it's considered to be a messianic prophecy, one speaking of the Messiah King that's to come. And it speaks of a king who would come as a child from the line of King David. He would usher in a new kingdom, a new government that would be marked by justice and righteousness. And that his kingdom would be a kingdom that lasts forever. And we're told that he would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And the character and nature of his kingdom is one where, as we also saw, the wolf will lay down with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goats, the infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither be harmed. In other words, it's a kingdom without hostilities, without war, without fear, or without death. One where justice and righteousness prevail, where injustice is crushed. It is a kingdom of perfect peace, ruled by a prince of peace. I mean, this is what the Bible has, has in mind when it speaks of peace. Now, of course, often when we speak of peace, we tend to think about peace more in the line of you know, a sense of tranquility or even a sense of rest, which is good and fine. But the word that we, get the, that we get peace from, the word that we translate into peace in Hebrew, is a word, is a concept known as shalom. And shalom is far more than just tranquility or rest. Shalom, in the Old Testament specifically, speaks of wholeness, of fullness, of completeness. The idea of shalom is recognizing that life is complex. And so as a result, when aspects of life are not in alignment with how they should be, shalom begins to break down. So when true shalom is present, all things are working in perfect harmony together. There is wholeness. There is completeness. 
That is why uh, throughout the Bible, shalom is often viewed as more than just a sense of tranquility, but it's a pursuit of repairing everything that is broken. So when there is fear and uncertainty in life, shalom is complete rest that is free from all worry and all doubt. When shalom, perfect shalom exists, there is perfect wholeness. You know, if there were two nations that were to go to war, shalom is not a ceasefire, which is often how we understand peace. Rather, shalom is a reconciliation that leads to the two warring nations to find trust in one another. That's shalom. When there's injustice, shalom is not just ending the cause of injustice. Shalom is repairing the damage caused and created by that injustice in order that wholeness might come, not only to the victim of injustice, but also a restoration of the victimizer, the perpetuator of injustice. And so when conceived that way, we can be confident that we have never fully experienced that kind of peace. I mean, when has there ever been perfect and complete relational wholeness between alienated parties? perfect justice that restores both the victim and the, uh, the perpetrator of injustice. The kind of peace that no longer requires the lamb to suffer as a result of the hunger of the wolf, or a complete peace that would allow a mother to freely play with a cobra or a viper, not concerned that the child will be harmed. We know, of course, those are rhetorical statements being made to show the absurdity of this kind of peace, from our vantage point, it's absurd to imagine that kind of wholeness, that kind of peace. But according to Isaiah, that is the kind of peace that we can expect in the kingdom of God. The kingdom ruled by the Messiah King, the one called Jesus. And so when Jesus speaks of peace, be assured that shalom is very much what he has in mind. Blessed are the shalom makers for they will be called children of God. So if that's what Jesus has in mind when he speaks of peace, what then is peacemaking? What does it mean to pursue that kind of peace? Let's consider that. Uh, we need to start by uh, addressing some unfortunate assumptions that I think many people have, Christians in particular, have about what it means to pursue uh, peace. Specifically, there would be some that would say, that the kind of peace that I just described, this everlasting wholeness, this that kind of peace, is really only something that we will experience fully when Jesus' kingdom is fully experienced by us when he returns one day. And they are right to say that. We cannot and will not experience the fullness of shalom until one day Jesus returns. But in relation to that, there are also who would then say, well, then as a result, we should not be concerned about pursuing that kind of peace. We can't attain that kind of peace. It's never going to happen until Jesus comes, and so we really should not be that concerned with pursuing it now. And so it's not the role of the Christian or the role of the church to pursue this kind of wholeness of shalom. In other words, since perfect wholeness and justice and righteousness and rest and shalom will not be experienced until one day Jesus comes, why worry about it now? But is that right? Is it right to say that because we won't experience it one day that we should not pursue it now? 
Well, in his book, uh, Political Evangelism, Richard Mao was a highly respected theologian. He's also, uh, he was the president of a well-respected uh, seminary for many years. Uh, he considers the extent to which Christians ought to be engaged politically. Uh, the book was actually written in 1970, which um, reading it again is remarkably useful, even for us today. And uh, <clears throat> I just want to read to you some thoughts that he has on this topic. As a side note, just to point out, when he uses the term political, he's not using it often in the ways that we tend to use it. So in context of what, what you're about to hear me read from him, he's reflecting on the concept of shalom and pursuing wholeness and shalom in the world. And so when you hear him speak of politics, he's not necessarily speaking of being political, though he has some thoughts about that, but rather he's talking about what it means to engage the issues of our society and our nation that undermine shalom. In particular, he pushes against the notion that because it, though it is impossible for us to experience shalom, that we should not still pursue it nonetheless. So let me read this to you. It's a little bit of an extended quote. Um, I figured I'd let him help me out with a sermon instead of trying to recapitulate what he already said. So let me read this for you. We can throw that, uh, throw that slide up. Those who are pessimistic about their attitude on a belief that very little progress can be made in this area short of return of Christ. It is not uncommon for Christians to refuse to protest against military exploits on the ground that will, quote, uh, there will be no true peace until the uh, Prince of Peace returns, or to refrain from speaking against poverty because the poor shall always be with us, or to adopt an attitude of resignation toward human conflict since there will be wars and rumors of wars in the last days. But then he goes on to say that we must also be clear about the requirements of the divine mandate to which our Christian witness is a response. The Christian is not called to launch programs that are successful in terms of human criteria. The Christian is called to be faithful to the heavenly vision. And here's this, here's what I want us to walk away with. Thus, even if we could be certain that we live in an age in which the smallest degree of political success is possible, this would in no way cancel our obligation to witness faithfully to the full triumphs of Christ's atoning work. When Christ returns, he will be concerned to find us faithful in living out the demands of discipleship. The conviction that his return is not far off should only reinforce our desire to witness this power. What is being said there? The kind of peace that's described in Matthew 9, I'm sorry, in Isaiah 9, and 11, and Matthew 5, is the peace that Jesus calls his people to reflect and to pursue now. We've said this over and over and over again throughout this series, and we'll continue to do so throughout the series, but uh, the words of John Calvin and later theologian J.I. Pachter constantly are coming to mind for me that the task of the church is to make the invisible kingdom of Christ visible now. And that pursuit of wholeness, of shalom, is what it means to faithfully live as a Christian. Even if success by human measures seems insignificant, it remains still a faithful witness to the full triumphs of Christ's atoning work and his kingdom when his people pursue such wholeness now. Now, there are a couple ways that we can pursue this kind of peace. 
a couple of categories that I want us to consider. Two in particular. Number one, we are called to be peacemakers in our interpersonal relationships. I want to talk about that for a second. But the other thing that I want to talk about is not only should we be pursuing this kind of shalom and wholeness in our interpersonal relationships, but more to Mao's point, we should also be pursuing this kind of shalom in societal-wide engagement. Let me speak about those two things quickly. At an interpersonal relationship level, Christians ought to pursue shalom in their personal relationships. If you are a Christian, this is a call that you have to pursue wholeness in all of the relationships. What does that mean? What does it mean to pursue wholeness and shalom in your interpersonal relationships? Well, for one, it means repentance when you've hurt others. It means repairing the consequence of our sins or our injustices against other people. It means seeking the best for those with whom we work or within our families or our friends or our church communities. I mean, we have said this over and over again. The Beatitudes of Jesus are constantly pushing us to stop looking at ourselves and start considering the good of other people. And this is no different. Pursuing shalom is seeking the wholeness of other people in our lives. It means that when protection is needed, we bring protection. When rebuke is needed, we bring rebuke. When it means that we crying with others who cry or laughing with those who are laughing or providing for those in need, defending the defenseless, all the different ways that we can pursue the wholeness of the people in our lives, we ought to do so. This is what it means to be a peacemaker in our interpersonal relationships. And so the question would be, for all of us, where, my friends, should you, could you be pursuing shalom in your relationships? And where, even more importantly, where are you undermining shalom and wholeness in the relationships in your life? Are you a shalom maker in the regular daily rhythms of your life? But peacemaking is more than just interpersonal. That is not the only thing that Isaiah and Jesus have in mind in the concept of shalom and peace. There's another way that we can be pursuing peace, even beyond just interpersonally, but also in societal-wide engagement. Uh, we said that shalom is recognizing and realizing the interconnectedness of life, and just know that none of us live in a vacuum. There are multiple ways in which the brokenness of this world is constantly impacting not only us, but those that are around us. And so peacemaking is combating the causes of the breakdown of shalom, not only interpersonally, but also broader in a societal-wide context. It's desiring to see wholeness amongst the most vulnerable, among the oppressed, among the forgotten peoples and people groups and nations. Uh, in his book, Reading While Black, which I've uh, referenced several times, uh, Esau Macaulay is reflecting on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And he pushes us to think in holistic kingdom ways that take seriously the full scope of the peace experienced in Christ's kingdom. Again, I want to give you a little extended quote because they're both making my job a lot easier today. He puts it this way. You can throw this, uh, that, next, that next slide up. Isaiah envisions a kingdom in which the hostilities between nations and the created order will be removed. To call God's people to peacemaking, that means 
beginning the work of ending hostility that will mark the Messiah's reign. To claim that Jesus uh, envisions the end of a personal hostility and to neglect ethnic or national hostilities does not do justice to the kingdom theology undergirding the entire sermon. Sermon about that is. What then does peacemaking involve? And what does this have to do with the church's political witness? Biblical peacemaking is the cessation of hostilities between nations and individuals as a sign of God's inbreaking kingdom. Again, he's using the framework of political witness, which is not necessarily to speak of politics as we tend to uh, conceive of them, but rather the issues that impact our society and our nation. The issues that at times might be politicized, yet should not be uh, relegated only to politics. What he is calling us to and showing us in Jesus' words and in Isaiah's words is that as a church, those of you who are Christians, we have this opportunity to be part of what it means to end the hostilities that will mark the Messiah's reign. What does that look like? Practically speaking, what does it mean for Christians? What does it mean for the church to be part of presenting this Messiah's reign, this reign that is marked by shalom? Well, where are the places where we see complete breakdown of wholeness and shalom in our society? You know, where there is a lack of wholeness among the poor, do we seek their shalom? Or is there apathy or maybe even disdain for the poor? Where there is a lack of wholeness amongst the immigrants or the foreigner, do we seek their shalom? Or is there nationalism and politicizing of image bearers? Where there's a lack of wholeness in our society with race relations, do we seek shalom? Or is there tribalism or complacency or even a defense of the status quo? Where there's a lack of wholeness as a result of historic injustices, even if we didn't participate directly in those historic injustices, do we seek shalom through the restoration and repair of those who are affected? Or is there blame shifting and responsibility shirking? Where there is a lack of wholeness for the most vulnerable among us, from those in the womb to those who are nearly in the tomb, do we seek shalom and protection and care for them? Or do we turn a blind eye? Where there is a lack of wholeness amongst political rivals, do we seek shalom? Or is there partisanship and factiousness where there is war and violence and unethical business practices and broken families and inequitable policies? Do we seek shalom? Do we seek wholeness of those around us, wholeness of our community? Are we part of the solution, making clear to the world what the kingdom of God will look like, or are we part of the problem by contributing to the ongoing breakdown of shalom? If we believe, and we should, that Christ's kingdom is one marked by shalom and peace, then the people of God, who are called to make the invisible kingdom visible, those called to begin the work of ending hostilities that will mark the Messiah's reign, ought to be on the front lines of pursuing shalom in our society. For in the words of Mao, no matter how big the task, and no matter how small the success might seem, 
In the end, this should in no way cancel our obligation to the witness faithfully to the full triumphs of Christ's atoning work. An atonement that includes the redemption and restoration of all the creation. In what ways are we proclaiming the full triumphs of Christ's atoning work in our interpersonal lives, in the ways that we care about our communities, of our city, of our nation, and beyond? Now, with all of that said, I recognize all of that is an extraordinarily tall order that, if you're honest, probably feels completely beyond your natural abilities to engage. I mean, who here has the boldness and, frankly, arrogance to assume that we have what is needed to not only achieve shalom in our interpersonal lives, let alone far beyond that? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, none of us can. And often, we really don't even care to. When we hear the call of Jesus to be peacemakers, we don't think much of it. And naturally, maybe we find very little motivation to embark on such a venture. And frankly, unless we see the reasons why we are called to be peacemakers, we will never actually become the kind of people Jesus calls us to be in becoming peacemakers in this world. So to understand the basis for why we are called to be peacemakers, we need to take a look at the final statement that Jesus makes in this beatitude. Because not only does Jesus call us to be peacemakers, he tells us why Jesus tells us, blessed or happy are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. What does it mean to be a child of God? A child of God that pursues this kind of peace. Let's look at that finally. Uh, there is another way that the Bible talks about peace, particularly in the New Testament. It is very related to the concept of shalom, but it focuses more on how shalom is ultimately accomplished. Uh, the ultimate expression of shalom is rooted in the peace, not that we have with one another, but rather the shalom that is being described is rooted in the peace that we have access to with God himself. It is a wholeness that restores the broken relationship at the root of all other lacks of shalom. It is a reconciled relationship that restores us back to our place as children of God. Uh, in uh, the Gospel according to John, he is reflecting on the nature of Jesus in the very first part of uh, his Gospel in John 1, and the significance of the incarnation of Jesus and Jesus' willingness to step into history. And I want to read to you a little bit about what John says so that it helps shape a bit of what it means for us to be children of God. He says this way, he says it this way in verse 9. He says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world, speaking to Jesus. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Let me just pause there for a second. In other words, just so we're clear, there is an alienation between us and God. The creator of the universe was in the world, yet because of the fractured relationship, the world did not recognize him nor receive him. This has been our state. The lack of shalom in the world is a direct result of our lack of sight to see the author of Shalom. To reject the God of Shalom is to reject the Shalom he establishes. Then he goes on in verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, 
He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decisions or a husband's will, but born of God. We stop there. For those who see Jesus, for those who see him as that messianic king that Isaiah prophesied about, there is a reconciled relationship. Romans 5 says that through faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That means that there is a restored relationship with the God of Shalom. And it's through that relationship, as we trust in Jesus, that we then begin to see the kind of Shalom that God says his kingdom is marked by. But what else must we consider here? Because what we're talking about is for us having a reconciled relationship with God, which is the ultimate foundational motivation for us being peacemakers. But not only does Christ accomplish our peace with God individually as we trust in Jesus, he's also accomplishing a peace for the entirety of creation. Colossians 1 speaks of there being this, this reconciliation that God has to himself through Jesus of all things in heaven and on earth making peace through the blood and shed the shed blood of Christ on the cross. The cross of Christ reconciles all things to himself, not only for our own individual salvation, but for the entire cosmos there is reconciliation. There is shalom, a perfect wholeness accomplished in Jesus. And it's a fool's errand to pursue shalom without first being reconciled to the God of shalom but also recognizing what God is accomplishing in the world through this cosmic restoration that Christ accomplishes. I mean, it's a defeating proposition to pursue shalom without seeing the shalom that's already been accomplished in Jesus. And so my call to all of us would just be first and foremost, the extent to which we trust that we have been brought into a renewed relationship with God as a result of what Jesus has done the peace that Jesus has accomplished for us. Have we experienced that kind of shalom between us and God? Because if we do, the extent to which we see that shalom, the extent to which we understand that God has made us right with him, is the extent to which we can now be people who go into the world to pursue that same kind of shalom. And so my question, my final question would just be, for all of us, is this. Twofold. First, if you recognize that you've been restored, once hostility between us and God, there's now peace and shalom between us and God. Are we finding ways to be that kind of peacemaker in the relationships that are immediately close to us? Are we those that are pursuing shalom in our homes, in our workplaces, in our interpersonal relationships? But do we also care about faithfully bearing witness to the full triumphs of Christ's atoning work, to begin the ending the hostilities that mark the Messiah's reign, to making the invisible kingdom of Christ visible in all aspects of life. Church, as those who have peace with God and will experience the fullness of his shalom one day, no matter how much it doesn't seem like we'll be able to put a dent in ending the lack of shalom in this world, are we a people that pursue it nonetheless? That we might declare the beauty and the glory of what God is accomplishing 
not only in us, but in all the cosmos. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. First and foremost, Lord, that though we were, uh, as your word tells us, your enemies, we were those that had set ourselves up in opposition to you by not acknowledging to you, acknowledging you to be the God over all things, the God of our lives. Out of your grace and out of your mercy, you sent your Son to crush that kind of rebellion. For it's that rebellion that has created all of the lack of shalom that we experience. And God, we thank you for that grace. Would you help us, Lord, to be a people that look upon the work of Jesus with great joy and wonder at the peace that has been accomplished for us in him. And may the realization of that peace shape us in such a way that we become a people who desire to see shalom in our, our personal lives, in our communities, and Lord, at times that might seem like an impossible task, and it is in many ways, but may that not deter us. May your spirit empower us to continue on, that we might make this aspect of your kingdom known and seen evident in this world even now. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem Podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.